Who is Jesus to you? In 1820, one of our founding fathers bought a copy of the King James Bible. One of our founding fathers, a respected man that we all would look up to, his face is on our currency, and uh, he took a copy of the King James Bible and the scissors in one hand and tape in the other. He began to meticulously focus and very strategically cut through the pages and the lines of Scripture extracting out very methodology, with a great methodology and great uh, detail, pulling out different scriptures of passages of words that were, that were meaningful and some that he did, actually did not believe. He took the words, the doctrines of Jesus, and he took them and he compiled them into his own copy, his own version of the scriptures. This guy that you would know as Thomas Jefferson wrote and uh, did not write, but compiled his own copy of the Bible. The Jefferson Bible, you can still buy on walmart.com if you so choose, for six bucks. I checked it out this morning. Whenever you think about that and you think, what in the world was Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of our nation's thinking and doing, but this is in his own words, I did this from my own use, for my own use. By cutting verse by verse from the printed book and arranging them in arranging them uh, the matter that are his and are easily di- uh, distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. That's what he called. What he pulled out was from a dunghill, bringing out only doctrinal truths. Is what he did whenever he cut up the scriptures. Now, you might think about that. What was, what was Jefferson doing? He was believing in Jesus, but he was believing in his version of Jesus and not the version of the New Testament. He had his ideas and all the miracles and all the healings and all the demon possessions and all of that was absolutely in a secular mind, far beyond reason, and that could not be true. But he was a good moral person and he would accept him as a moral person. So therefore, he made a Bible in his own beliefs. Whenever you think about that, I think that is not so far removed from us today. I just got back from two weeks in Athens with seven other pastors and church leaders showing them what all is involved in the refugee work that we've been a part of for the past couple of years, hoping that they're going to also buy in, step up, even uh, take it to a new level for some of them in their own refugee work. But when I got off the plane in the first 10 minutes of being on the ground, getting in the taxi. And for the next few moments, I had this, uh, this taxi driver who had lived in Athens for 30 years. And I just had 30 minutes or 45 minutes with this guy in traffic. And I began to ask him just one question. Who is Jesus to you? And immediately he gave me his response with, a, with convictions. This is a 30-year Ar- Arminian who's lived in Athens for, for, for this many years. Jesus is the church. And that's who Jesus was to him. So I ask you the question today, who is Jesus to you? Different people have different versions of their Jesus. But this is not uncommon. In the first century, they had a problem understanding who Jesus was. When Jesus was with his disciples, he literally asked them one simple question. After all this time of walking with them, showing and sharing himself in everyday conversations with everyday people, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? 
And there was all kinds of confusion even in the first century. So the 21st century, wouldn't you expect the same? I ask you again, who is Jesus to you? For some, Jesus is a puppet. They tell Jesus what they need. They tell Jesus what they want. They expect Jesus to respond to them. Jesus is a puppet. For others, Jesus is a panic button. They push Jesus only when they need him. They push him only in those uh, 911 moments. They push Jesus in that kind of way, and he is a panic button. Others, he's a prop. They kind of lean against him. They kind of use him as somebody that they can get some leverage in the community, maybe win over some friends, and they use Jesus as a prop. Other people use Jesus as a placebo. He is more or less a pill that you take. You don't really think he's going to do anything. You'll pray. You'll, you'll even lift up a few prayers for somebody else, at least sending them some good vibes. But in reality, you don't have a heart-level, life-changing experience, and he's more of a placebo. Tim Keller said it like this, If the God you worship never disagrees with you, you may be just worshiping an ideal version of yourself. I think that when I read that, I think that's much about what Thomas Jefferson did to the Bible. He wanted Jesus to be the Jesus that he believed Jesus to be. Instead of allowing, again, the scriptures to speak to us. An atheist, uh, a well-informed, educated, magna cum laude atheist who had graduated with this high honor. And he came into the faith disavowing the faith as an atheist out to disprove Jesus. That Jesus, who he was, what he said he was, or anything like this. And he landed in his analytical mind, he landed on three different potential options. Jesus is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is the Lord. There's really no other way you can slice or dice him up. If he is a liar, then he's not a good moral teacher. If he's a liar, he's a deceiver and a cult leader, and he's been brainwashing people for many, many years, and we can't call him a good moral teacher, okay? All it means every time he did something good, we have to believe it is a little bit suspect. So if he's a liar, then whenever Pilate saw him, he couldn't have been a liar because when Pilate saw him, they did everything they could to prove he was corrupt and evil and wrong. And Pilate said this, I find no fault in him. And even the centurion soldier who helped to crucify him at the foot of the cross looked up and said, this is the son of God and believed in him. I don't believe Jesus was a liar. Otherwise, all of his moral teachings, all that he was about, all that he stood for, all that he represented would be suspect. Neither do I believe he's a lunatic, though that may be where some land. If he's a lunatic, then basically he's a crazy man. His elevator doesn't go to the top floor. He's a few bricks shy of a load, whatever else you want to put in there. Well, if he's a crazy person, he's a lunatic, then who's going to follow a lunatic unless you're a lunatic? Unless you're a crazy person. But now think about that. The rationale behind that is probably highly impossible because when you're talking about a handful of people following a crazy person, that makes sense. That could happen. But when you're talking about thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people being exposed to him day and night, him opening up his life to them, walking together, whenever you're talking about high 
powerful people like a Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea who's high and wealthy. You talk about Roman citizens who respected him. You're talking about low, uh, the, the, the blue-collar, uh, uh, low-educated people, uh, the, the fishermen or the, the educated and the uneducated or the, the well. They all were following him. Again, that doesn't happen if you're a lunatic. So therefore, there's only one other option. He must be the Lord. And if he's the Lord, thank you, Marcus. If he's the Lord, then we need to lean in on this. We need to lean in and we need to ask ourselves, how is he the Lord in my life? How is he the Lord in my life? Take your Bibles and be finding the gospel of Mark. We're going to be starting, as uh, Brooks said earlier, we're going to be starting a study in, in the Gospel of Mark. I wish I could say we're going to be going verse by verse. We will not be. We will be taking the next five weeks to look at 16 chapters. So you could just do the math on that. There's no way we're going to do it justice. But we are going to hit some high themes. We are going to hit some major parts of the book of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is believed to be the very first written record of the life of Jesus. Now think on that for just a moment. Somewhere between 66 and 70 AD, Rome comes in, conquers Jerusalem, knocks down the temple again, deports the people, exiles some to, 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 to uh, Rome, comes in and kills many Christian, uh, many, many uh, Jews in the street. It was another holocaust. It was a dark day in the, in the nation of Israel, but Rome was asserting their authority. It's many people believe that it was during that time that Peter himself was crucified and he was crucified upside down. Mark's gospel was written and many people believe that it was Peter's account of Jesus's life. So we're talking about one of the persons who literally walked the closest shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. And John Mark, who is his secretary, hears the stories and in rapid fire at nearly the death sentence of Peter, he is writing down the stories of the Savior because they're realizing this in this day and age in Jerusalem that the stories, if they're going to last, they're going to have to be written down. And Mark becomes the very first gospel on which Matthew builds on, on which Luke builds on, of which John will come back later on, many years later, and add even more breadth and depth to the gospel account and the story of Jesus. Whenever you come to this story, we're going to start in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Now, whenever you look at this, I'm, I'm pointing us to probably the most important verse in the book of Mark. So we're going to look at the gospel of Mark. We're going to look at the very first verse of Mark. And I'm going to say this is the most important verse in the gospel of Mark. It tells us the who, the what, the when, the where, and the how, all in a matter of one verse. But I want us to read it in sections real quickly here. Number one, what does it say there whenever you look at the gospel of Mark? It says, in the beginning of the gospel. In the beginning of the gospel. This is not how Matthew starts. This is not how Luke starts. In the beginning of the gospel, Matthew and Mark start with genealogies. But immediately what Mark starts with is the gospel. In the beginning of the gospel, the gospel means good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it means literally good news. So in the beginning of the good news, 
If you have your Bibles or you have the, the, the journal Bibles, you can begin to make and, and draw and circle and, and begin to make your own notes as you go. But notice this. He says, Arche, in the beginning of the good news. Now, when you think about good news, if you've got a new job, that's good news. If you go and you go for a, a checkup on you've had cancer and you find out the cancer's in remission, that's good news. And so there's lots of things that could give us good news. But this is not just any good news. He goes on to say, of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the good news. It is the object of the good news. It is the statement that we are receiving not just a word, not just a a, a theory, not just a philosophy, but we're actually receiving the good news and the good news is a person. So let's hang our hats, not on a philosophy, not on an idea, not on a doctor's report, not on a raise from a boss, not on anything else, but let's hang our hats on what good news is. It is in a person named Jesus. So if you want to write and you want to understand the good news, you want to look into, unpack, unravel, uh, peel back the layers of who Jesus Christ is. And in case you were wondering, who Jesus Christ, the beginning of the good news is. It says it in the very next statement. He is the Son of God. Don't let anybody tell you that it was years later, it was in the Council of Nicaea in 300 uh, AD, that, that actually it was then that they believed that Jesus was the Son of God. It was a council over a century later. No, 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 no. In the first century, in the first eyewitnesses, in the very first account written of Jesus Christ, the very first words that is saying that, listen, this is the good news. This is the gospel. It is Jesus Christ, and he is the Son of God of God. Can I get an amen to that? Now, when we're talking about the good news and we're going to unpack this good news and we're going to unpack this Jesus, Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. That's who Jesus is. I hope he is that to you. I hope that you will know that, live that, see that, smell that as you, as Brooke brought out, as you use your guide to study through the gospel of Mark over the next 40 days. I pray that you will take the time diligently and record what God says to you about himself. The man, the mystery, the myth, the legend, I pray that you will unpack it and you will understand it. I want to give you some factoids every week because I can't give you everything there is about the Gospel of Mark. So I want to give you just some quick factoids as we go along here. Number one factoid is it is a short story. It is the shortest of all the Gospels, 16 chapters, but that means something. It's not just that it's the shortest. It's actually the shortest for an intentional reason. It was actually the Gospel of Mark was written down by John Mark from the lips of Peter to be told in one setting where you would read through or hear the Gospel account of Jesus in all one episode, one episodic moment, you would hear the entire account of Jesus. This is what one scholar said. Mark's story was presented from memory, told all at one time, probably in houses, in marketplaces, at meals, at evening gatherings, in the synagogue-like assemblies. The written text of the Gospel of Mark functioned as a script of storytelling, such as a script functions in a play, a sheet music, or a musical performance. 
When you read the gospel, I am going to challenge you to do something during this Lent season. I'm going to challenge you to do something this very next week. And that is to open up the gospel of Mark and to sit down, put your phone in the other room, turn off the television, put all the noise and distractions out of your life. And for one moment in time, you may have never done this. Let this be a New Year's resolution. You start today that you will read the gospel through in one setting. 16 chapters. I'm a dyslexic, and I timed myself the other day when I did it. I read it through, and it took me 65 minutes. One television episode of your favorite drama, and you can read the Gospel of Mark. Read it through in one setting. And here's what I want you to do is every day then go back and read. After you read it through in that broad stroke, then go back and read it chapter by chapter according to the guide that you got. And I want to encourage you to do this. we got a number of men in our church, and I'll even link you up with some if you want to learn more about this, that they're using the SOAP method whenever they're reading through the Scriptures. All right? SOAP. It's good to wash it, use soap every day. So here's the SOAP method. Basically, you read the Scriptures. You take time for observation. You look for application. It's one statement. It's one phrase. It's an attitude. It's a, it's a sin it's a, uh, that I need to confess. It's an attitude that I need to change. It's a command that I need to follow. It's an example. Whatever the case, the, it, what is it the observation? What is the application? Then you pray it into your life. Just think about soap, and you'll do that through the Scriptures. It's a short story. Do it. Sit down and read it. Number two, factoid, fast-paced action thriller. Not only is it a short story, it is a fast-paced action thriller. Think about Fast and Furious first century version. And when I say that, Fast and Furious, Tim Keller says it like this, when you read the Gospel of Mark, you will become breathless. Think about that. You will read the Gospel of Mark and you will lose your breath. Why? Because it's so fast-moving. 41 different times he uses one Greek word, uh, uthus, which means immediately. Now, that may not mean much to you immediately 41 different times, but when you look at the Gospel of Mar, Matthew, when it's used five times, Gospel of John four times, Gospel of Luke one time, basically what, I, what you're looking at is there's 11 times in all the other Gospels and 41 times it's used immediately, 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 immediately. The Gospel of Mark is very fast-paced. It's also a book of doing. It's not a book that you're going to want to read on a retreat, okay? You will get your blood pumping. We focus sometimes on being. We focus sometimes on doing. The Gospel of Mark is not a retreat book. It is a charge book. It is your Monday morning before you go to the office book. It's the, it's the Monday morning before you ha- handle, uh, go out into this world to live sin. It is a doing book. I give that an example to that in that there are five, only five of Jesus' 37 parables that are listed in the Gospel of Mark. 37 parables, it's not a teaching book. It's an action book. 20 miracles are mentioned, five parables. It is Jesus on the move, and that's what it's about. Number three, factoid, is it, the title of the series, the title of the movie, the title of the episode is The Crown and the Cross. The Crown and the Cross. I'm sorry, Siri, I wasn't talking to you. Um, eight weeks message. We're going to talk about it, and in, in, in you're going to see characters and settings and plots and conflict and resolution. It's going to have it all. Oh, resolution is 
hate to tell you this, spoiler alert, the good guy wins and he gets the girl. It's called the bride of Christ. It's called the church. He comes back to life again, okay, in the end. We're going to celebrate that. Can I get another amen to that? Yes, thanks. The first eight chapters are about the kingdom of God. He is breaking into the kingdom of God and he is talking about the crown. The kingdom of God is brought into this earth. He is the kingdom of God. And then chapter 9 to 16, he will turn to talk about the cross. He doesn't even mention the cross in the first nine chapters. In the last part, he will mention the cross almost every day. It blows the minds of the disciples. They're not getting it. They're not understanding it. But it goes right up to the cross uh, of Christ. Let's ask the question again, who is Jesus? And let's ask the question in light of chapter one, who is Jesus? And I want us to get some perspectives on this. And I want to call these three compounding perspectives, not three individual perspectives from different angles, but I'm saying they're three perspectives built on top of each other. When you look at them in the order that they come out, it hopefully will deepen and broaden and strengthen your resolve of who Jesus is, the Godhead. I want us to look, first of all, through the perspective of the Godhead, the lens of the God of the universe, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They affirm that Jesus is God. They affirm that he is God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's not three different gods. It's one God in three different expressions. I know it doesn't make sense. I've been studying this for 30 years. It still doesn't make sense to me. I just have to embrace it. I have to realize that my limited mind will never fully comprehend a limitless God. And because God is limitless, i got to just embrace the fact that my mind is limited. But yet I can know this, that there is an infinite God who wants an intimate relationship with me. And that is a beautiful reality that we're going to see. And sometimes it's not God causing the delay or the, the lack of growth, but it's actually what's going on in the hearts of his closest disciples that will hinder our own walk with God. Or hinder our own ability. But let's come back to the Godhead. The Godhead, again, it's hard to understand the Trinity, three in one. Listen, you'll never see the word Trinity in the Scriptures. It's not there. Neither will you find rapture in the Scripture. But it doesn't mean the truth is not there. It's really hard for people to understand. It's hard for me to explain and put my arms around. But you go back to the very beginning of time. It was God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit, all working as a triune God together in the creation of the world. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, God said, God said, Elohim said, let us, plural, make man in our image after our likeness. So we have in the very beginning of time this plurality, but yet singular. We have this Godhead, God the Father, God the Son. John chapter 1 tells us that God the Son, Jesus, was very present on that day. Also, Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says the Spirit was hovering over the face of the earth. And we're going to find in this passage of Scripture where the same three are coming together. And we're seeing this beautiful union in the beginning of the gospel of Mark. So let's, uh, let's look at Mark chapter 1. Beginning in verse 10. It says, And when he came up, 
when he came up, where did he come up from? Out of the water. Immediately, there's the word uthus, mentioned the first time. He saw the heavens being torn apart. This is the only time in the Gospel of Mark that the word torn is used, this Greek word is used, until you get to chapter 15, verse 38. I'm going to give you a lot of facts through this gospel study of Mark, so you're going to just have to jot them down really quickly here. But it's really important that you see in the beginning, the heavens were torn. What is torn in Mark chapter 15? The temple curtain was torn. And again, we'll get there in in, in the weeks ahead, but you see this tearing apart. And what happens when the heavens are being torn? The Spirit third person in the Trinity, descends on him, who's him, Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, like a dove, and the voice from heaven. First person in the Trinity, God the Father begins to speak, and what does he say? You are my beloved son. I love those words as a father to a son. Your sons ought to know, your daughters ought to know, you are my beloved child. And I love it that the father continues to speak to, to, the, to the son and he calls him and he says, in whom I am well pleased. Now Jesus went through this as his baptism. Why was Jesus baptized? We are baptized to declare our faith in Jesus Christ. We believe in believer's baptism because we are identifying with Jesus. It is a declaration of our faith. And on April the 5th will be our next baptism. And if you've never declared or you do not know Jesus as God, as the God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit affirms today, then I pray today will be that day. But I pray on April 5th, you will declare it in baptism and identifying with Jesus because it is Jesus here who shows us that he connects to the Father and the Father connects to him and the Holy Spirit is right there in the midst and they are working in one harmonious mission. And they are working together as one yet three distinct parts. It is through Jesus that we connect with God. Number two is I want us to see the people. Again, remember there's compounding. Layer one is Godhead is looking at Jesus and saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He is God. Yes, he is. But also notice the second perspective are the people. And how do they, how do they see Jesus? They see Jesus as worthy of following, worthy of getting in lockstep with, worthy of doing it your way, not my way, God. He invites us into the relationship. There's no such thing as a forced conversion here. I don't care if it's the Ottoman Empire, the Crusaders, or five-point Calvinists. You cannot force into the relationship. It is an invite by the Father and a response from those who who will say yes. Go down to chapter 1, verse 16. And passing along the Sea of Galilee and Simon and Andrew... Calls him by name, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. Simon, by the way, is Peter. Peter is the author, or excuse me, he's giving the words to John Mark. So he puts himself into the story. Uh, The brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That is a promise with a condition. 
The promise is, I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'll make you the best you you've ever been. But the condition is, you've got to follow me. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And what do they do? Uthus, kai uthus, and immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And again, you go in the next verses and I don't have time to read it, but you'll see again that he calls uh, the, uh, the uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and immediately, what do they do? They leave their nets and they follow him. So the response of a disciple, the response of you and I, what we're to do in humanity, if we're going to acknowledge Jesus for who Jesus is, we follow him. We go his way. We do life his way, not our way. We follow his voice. We lead. We let him lead our lives. We follow him in lockstep with him. Whenever you're parenting, and I'm sure many of you are parents in the room, you have the joy of training up your children to obey you, right? I say joy because sometimes you have to say positive things over the negative emotions. So I can remember raising our kids. And our kids have been, I, I tell you, I absolutely would not want to do hardly anything differently with our kids. They were incredible. But like every other kid, they get into the mode. And I remember our boys got into a phase whenever we would tell them to go clean their room. We'd, they'd be gone. They'd be silent. They'd be in their room. And we're thinking they're back there cleaning their room. And then we go back there and the room is now messier than it was when we sent them back there to begin with. And so I can remember this particular conversation with Caleb, and Caleb will be listening to this on podcast, and he might remember this or not. But I do remember this very well whenever I said, hey, I told you to clean your room. He said, oh, we will. Hours later, he still hasn't cleaned his room, and his intent was to clean his room after he messed it up even more. But my intent as a father was to get him to clean his room then. So it wasn't just that we had to teach the word obey, We learned the word obey immediately. And it literally became a part of the phraseology of our parenting. You don't obey when you get ready to obey. You obey immediately. See, we have a procrastination problem sometimes with following Jesus. We have an intentional problem with Jesus. We want to follow Jesus. We intend to follow Jesus. But right now, I'm following myself. I got my own agenda. We have a procrastination problem when what we need to do is we need to obey immediately. So I ask you, is Jesus guiding your life? Three compounding perspectives on Jesus. God the Father looks and affirms Jesus is God. Mankind, humankind, people look at Jesus and if they really know who Jesus is, they get in lockstep with him and they follow him. But there's a third category in this story in the first chapter of Mark. And there's the demons. And they feared Jesus as God. Now I know you get a little weird, weirded out when somebody in church starts talking about demons and darkness and Satan. I don't talk about it a lot. I don't like to talk about it. I like to talk about Jesus. He's the victor, okay? Well, I talk about the enemy. So I don't want to talk about the enemy. But sometimes you just got to talk about the enemy. You got to know what's going on with the enemy. Because you also got to realize that we live in a day, in an age, as 1 Corinthians 2.8 says, that the, Satan is the ruler of this age. He is wanting to rule this age. The kingdom of God came down in Jesus, yes, that's the crown. But he's been fighting ever since as he went to the cross and as we continue to push the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. That's why we do what we do when we talk about global adventures. It's pushing the kingdom of God to where the kingdom of God is not. 
And so we are pushing out the kingdom of this world. And if you don't wake up in the morning, R.G. Lee said it like this, if you don't wake up in the morning and meet the devil face to face, it just means you're walking in the same direction. The reality is, is that if you're not in spiritual warfare right this moment, if you're not feeling the tension between good and bad and wrong and wrong and what's what, then I'm afraid you've been sucked into believing a very dangerous lie, and you're just using Jesus as a placebo this morning. Ephesians chapter six verse twelve makes it very clear. There's a hierarchy, there's a depth, and there's a dimension to all this darkness and this war that where it's going on in the dark side. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I don't wrestle against you. You don't wrestle against me. It's really not that. It's more against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Sounds like some sci-fi thriller, right? I'm telling you, we've got a story here that is action-packed. And the story is good against evil. It is light against darkness. It is Jesus against Satan. And when we come to this, we've got to realize that even the demons fear Jesus. I want us to read out loud together 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Read it out loud with me. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. I don't talk about demonization a lot, but I got a quick course education whenever I was a junior in high school. About that time, I started walking with the Lord, started living for the Lord, knew God was calling me into ministry. And I had two classmate friends of mine who came to me with a fr- another friend that was struggling with demons. And by the time I was a senior in high school, I was dealing with demonization and exorcism in conversations, and all I had was a Sunday school education. So I want to tell you that I believe with all my heart that demonization is very, very real. Moved to Africa some years later, saw it manifest itself in ways that uh, would kind of mind-blowing. I can tell you stories of being around a campfire and being in the campfire and selling the gospel accounts of Jesus. And and just beyond the campfire, my national partners were telling me after sharing the gospel there that there were demon-possessed people all beyond the campfire. I don't tell you that for sensationalism. I tell you that because Satan is real. Demons are real. But greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I had never, from my time I was a junior facing that first demonization to the time we were living in Africa to this very day, I don't fear for my life. While I fight in the battle, I do fight in the battle every day. I can tell you last week when I was fighting in a battle. I can tell you yesterday when I was fighting in a battle with, with, with Satan. If you don't understand that, please awaken yourself to it. But also understand this. That even among the demons of this world, Jesus is Lord of the universe, even over them. Go to Mark chapter 1, verse 21. And if you go there, you'll find the first of several demon cases where Jesus deals with them. And you find in verse 21, And when they went to Capernaum, Uthus, Kai Uthus, immediately on the Sabbath, he entered into the synagogue teaching and they astounded at his teaching and taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Kai Uthus, again, immediately as in the synagogue, a man 
with an unclean spirit. Notice where the unclean spirit man is. He's in the synagogue. Why wouldn't you think he'd be in the bar? Why wouldn't you think he'd be in the dark alley? Uh, Why wouldn't you think he'd be in some helter-skelter movie out there? No, no, no. He's in the church. Even the demons will go to the church. In their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. Notice what he cried out to Jesus. What have you done with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Notice who the demons of the world call Jesus. Say it with me. The Holy One of God. Even the demons of this world know who Jesus is. And you can go on and read. Uh, I don't have time. Let, let's, do, let's do one more. Uh, chapter 1, verse 32. Down just a few more verses in the evening, sundown. They brought to him uh, uh, all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And they healed many who were sick in various diseases and cast out many demons. And notice this. He would not permit the demons to speak. See, Hollywood paints the picture in a very unbiblical manner that it is the demons who are in control, large and in charge. It's not the case. Even they have to bow to the name of Jesus. Jot these verses down. You can read them later. Chapter 3, verse 8 to 12. You'll find where there is a uh, 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 demon-possessed individual there. And that demon, again, calls to Jesus and says, You are the Son of God. Chapter 5, verse 1 to verse 10. You'll read again of another account. And you'll read there of a man who has, listen to this, doesn't have one demon, two, three, ten, twenty, thirty, four, has six thousand and seven hundred demons. How do I know that? Because he said, I have a legion. I'm not one, I have a legion of demons in me. This is a person, listen, who was cutting himself. Self harm is one of the works of Satan. It's one of the works of Satan. And this man from this Dicopolis this Greek city where there were pigs. You know the story. The demons go out. They go into the pigs. The pigs go into the water. Jews don't have pigs. Greeks do. So this is a Greek community. And they go down into the water and they drown. This man had 6,700 demons in him because that's how many were in a legion of Roman soldiers. And it says this, that Jesus, the son of the the most high God, even the demons know who is. Jesus is. Jesus, though, my friend, is the victor in the story. He is the victor over Satan. So who is Jesus today? I take you back to the gospel of Mark chapter 1, verse 1. R.K. Ta Galion is the beginning, the very beginning of the story. The beginning of time? No, the beginning of the story. It's not the final act of the story. It's the beginning of the story. We're a part of that story to this day. That Jesus Christ is the gospel. He is the good news. We may be chapter 2, we may be chapter 22 of the story, but I pray to God that in this chapter of your life, that Jesus Christ is the one connecting you to God is the one who is guiding you through life as a follower of Jesus, is the one who is giving you the victory over Satan. 
Who is Jesus to you? There's 117 names for Jesus in the scripture. I want you to think about that. 117 names for Jesus. I pray you know him as Jesus Christ, the evangelist, the good news of God. What do you do with that story today? One more verse, chapter one, verse five. This is what you do with it. You repent and you believe the gospel. If you, my friends, want to live your life to the most incredible means, manner possible, look at Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. He is the one who will give you the victory over the darkest demon of your darkest day. He is the one who will give you the steps that you are to follow. He is the one who will connect you to God the Father. Do you know him today? Bow your heads with me. Around this room, I'm going to ask our prayer partners to move into their place where they are, pastors, pastor spouses. They're going to be all around the room because here's my invitation as clear as I can make it today as you sit there and you reflect on who is Jesus to me. If you don't know Jesus today as the gospel, the good news of life, my challenge to you is simple. And you just read it with me. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent, turn your life to Jesus. Believe, believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, who the scriptures say he is. Let him forever change your life. Father God, you know our hearts. Don't let Satan have victory in this moment. One more day, not only have victory in our life, but Lord, in this moment, may we in this room put a stake in the ground as we stand and we declare that you are the gospel. You are the good news. You are the one who connects us to the Father. You're the one who guides our steps. You're the one who gives us the victory over Jesus. And may we declare it with our life, with our lips, in every way today. In Jesus' name. Stand and respond. If God's calling you, you come right now.